copy of God's Word, you can turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 3 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 3. If you were here last week or not here last week, uh, we looked at chapter 2 in which Elisha had taken over the ministry for Elijah. Uh, and Elisha proved himself to be the, the true spirit-filled leader who um, has the power of God working in him and has the the, the ability to speak God's word, either for blessing or for curses. Um, and now as we kind of jump into the, the meat of Elisha's ministry, so to speak, if you were to read forward, you see that he encounters lots of different types of people in his ministry. Uh, so at some, time, at some points, he, he encounters hard-hearted rebels. At some points, he encounters faithful and suffering believers, and at other points he encounters Gentile outsiders to the nation. Uh, Chapter 3, which we are going to read today, is one of the texts in which he encounters hard-hearted rebels. Um, The Israelites uh, and and the the nation really at large who have heard and they they have known God and his word and they have rejected it. And they follow other gods. And so as we come to the text, let that, that color the way that we read it. Uh, before we do read it, though, let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you and ask for the help of your spirits. Uh, the spirit who searches and knows the, the deep things of God. We pray for his wisdom and knowledge to um, to help us to fill our hearts and to fill our minds. Lord, we know that there is uh, no way we can understand this text or live it out without your strength. And so we do pray for your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Second Kings chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned twelve years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? 
And one of the, the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts live before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel... The Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Amen. <clears throat> Well, this is, um, again, like last week in much of the Old Testament, this is, a, this is a puzzling narrative in a lot of different places. But the big idea, the thread that, that runs all the way throughout this text, is how we need God's Word and God's prophet. We need them with us at all times. And so the, the big middle majority of this, of this chapter describes how God delivers his people really from a mess that they made uh, on their own, um, and he saves them by his grace. But bookending it are, are two very, very strange uh, passages that feel almost out of place compared to the rest of the story. 
Uh, those two bookends, though, serve as, as very, very sober warnings, as we'll see, for God's people. And so we're going to look at this chapter um, in, in four main sections. Firstly, Jehoram's warning. Secondly, the crisis without God's word. Thirdly, why God listens. And fourthly, Misha's warning. So let's start in verses 1 through 3 with Jehoram's warning. Jehoram is the king over Israel. He is the son of Ahab. Uh, He will pop up a few different points in Elisha's ministry. This is not the only time we're going to see him. And yet, right off the bat, the author, Scripture, gives us the assessment that we need of his reign. And so how is Jehoram assessed in verses 1 through 3? Well, interestingly, he's kind of distanced from his family. Uh, He's not as bad as his father Ahab or his mother Jezebel. Uh, He put away this this strange pillar of Baal, a a sort of memorial stone that, that we don't really know much about. And yet, he is still considered an evil king in God's eyes. And so he was not as bad as he he could have been, and yet it says he still clings to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is that that Jeroboam made Israel to worship golden calves, right? The plague that, the, the, the sin that plagues Israel all throughout its history. Uh, the city of Bethel, which we talked about last week, and the golden calves. And so... Jehoram is a king who gets rid of these strange cultic Baal stones and at the same time still kind of allows idol worship in the country. So what's the lesson of Jehoram? He's not as evil as he could have been, but he was absolutely not as righteous as he should have been. Just because he was a little bit better than the guy that came before him doesn't make him righteous in God's sight. Uh, It's a little bit similar to a a chain smoker who gives up smoking. And what are some of the things that that you use to get rid of that smoking addiction? You chew gum. Uh, Sometimes people eat in order to to keep that oral fixation up. Um, Really what they've done is just kind of trade a greater addiction for a slightly lesser addiction. And so you can't help but chew gum or you can't help but eat or you can't help but do these other things. It's, it, it's a little bit better than it was before, but it still doesn't really fix the problem. And that's Jehoram. God does not insist on you being just a little bit better than, than maybe you are now. No, God and his word insist on perfection in your life. God insists on total submission to his word in every area. And it is very, very easy for us to to settle in our fight with sin sometimes. So sometimes that looks like making, you know, a lot of progress in your life in a certain area, and you kind of call it a day. And you say, well, I mean, look at how bad I was three years ago, now how good I am now. Is it really that big of a deal if I'm still angry in a way? Or how easy it is, is it to compare yourself to others? You could so easily compare Jehoram to Ahab and say, wow, Jehoram's great. Well, no, he's still a sinner. 
Yeah, it's easy to compare ourselves to the, the murderers and the adulterers and, uh, and all the really, really bad people. But that's not what God demands of us. Uh, it can be easy to, in another way, give a lot of your life to God's glory and his service and just keep a little bit back. Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a witness for God in my workplace Monday through Friday. I come to church on Sundays. I come to church Wednesday nights. But you know what? My weekend, I just need a little me time. Saturdays are my day. No, God, God demands every area of your life to be under the submission of his word. So maybe our sins aren't as spectacular as somebody else's. Uh, maybe our sins aren't as spectacular as they once were a few years ago, but those sins still deserve divine judgment, and they are still evil in God's sight. Scripture is totalitarian in its claim. And that's why Jehoram is not the savior or the reformer that Israel needs. He is an evil king in God's sight. And so now what happens? We have a king who refuses to seek the Lord. We have a king who refuses to pursue righteousness. Uh, and what happens? Crisis after crisis in his reign. Beginning in verse 4, he, he, he ascends the throne. And immediately what happens is, is Misha, king of Moab, who uh, I guess seemingly was, was sort of being controlled by Israel and controlled by Ahab, Misha, Misha sees Ahab die and says, this is my chance. I've got to get out from paying tribute to this king. Or Jehoram sure seems an awful lot weaker. I think we can finally leave. And so Misha revolts against Israel's control, and Israel loses them. They lose a bit of their dominion in the world. Jehoram tries to go and, and fix this himself, right? So he musters up an army. He musters up all of Israel. He, he recruits southern Judah to help him, King Jehoshaphat. He recruits uh, another nation that he's in control of, Edom, to go and march to Moab and whip Misha back into shape. They take this long, circuitous route when, second crisis, they run out of water. And so what's an army in the desert going to do without water? You're too far away from home, you're not close enough to Moab, and they're done for. It's curious that all of a sudden Jehoram believes in the sovereignty of God again. He blames God for what's happening. He says, the Lord is, is it's his plan to give us into the hands of King Moab. Uh, even when he eventually talks to Elisha, he says the same thing. He's accusatory. He blames God. God is giving us into the hand of King Moab. Um, which, it is right to believe in God's sovereignty. But if you only ever use it to blame God and not worship him, you've got the wrong idea about him. Uh, and so, they seek out the prophet of the Lord. They finally, they, they seem to come to their senses, right? We're going to find Elisha. We're going to hear what the Lord has to say. The final and the biggest crisis God's prophet rejects them, and he refuses to speak. Uh, Elisha, when the three kings come to him, he says, what do we have in common, Jehoram? 
Why are you suddenly so interested in God? Don't you have all of these other idols? Don't you have all these other saviors that you can run to? All these other gods that you've been worshiping? Why, why do you want to come to me now? Where were you before you set out on this journey? And Jehoram really stands uh, in, in our place, and he is a, a fantastic pattern for how not to seek God. Uh, I'm stealing this, this uh, analogy from, from another pastor. Jehoram treats God like the airbags in your car, right? You don't usually think about them being there. You don't usually need them, right? You, in fact, you hope you never need them. But they're there in emergency to save your skin. Um, that's how Jehoram sees God, sees his word, and sees God's help. It, they're there when I need an escape in time of emergency. Um, when in reality, God and his word is an all-encompassing pathway to walk on for your whole life. Um, God is not so much the airbags in your car. He is the road that you're driving down. He is the entire pathway. You cannot pick and choose when you go to God. Uh, Jehoram is clearly not interested in, in submitting his life and, and being a disciple of God and being a true believer. He just needs an escape here and there. And so what, what it's worth thinking about, what kind of other saviors do we tend to go to before we go to God? Uh, you know, I've got, my, I've got my coffee, I've got my caffeine to get me through the day. I've got my credit card to bail me out when I'm in some real trouble. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a smart guy. I'll come up with something when I cross that bridge. I'll rely on my own brain. Uh, when you choose to go it alone by yourself or take with you other saviors, you can dangerously put yourself beyond the help of God. There may be a time he does not respond to your call to help anymore because you've so given yourself over to other gods and looking for their help and looking for their salvation and trusting in them. Jehoram is outside of the reach of God's help in this text. Well, except for one thing. Uh, verse, verse 14 is sort of the, the hinge, sort of the, the, the point at which this whole chapter turns uh, a little bit like in chapter 2, where we're right smack dab in the middle is where the whole thing turns on its end. And in verse 14, Elisha says, As the Lord of hosts live, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. And that, that verse tells you two things. For one, it tells you God is not going to listen to Jehoram at all. On the other hand, he says, I will listen to somebody else. Why does God listen to Jehoram's cry for mercy? Because the true God-fearing and God-worshipping King Jehoshaphat is standing next to him. It's because the Davidic king who reigns in Jerusalem is with Jehoram. And so Elisha listens to his plea for help. 
And it's interesting, leading up to and, and through verse 14, Elisha's really just been addressing Jehoram. And so when he says, um, when he says, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, the prophets of your mother. Um, I, have, uh, I, have, I would neither look at you nor see you. Th- those are singular yous. He is only speaking to Jehoram. And the switch from verse 14 to 15, all of a sudden Elisha is saying, y'all, your entire camp, your entire army, I have regard for all of you because Jehoshaphat stands in your presence. Uh, he calls the musician to him, which is one of those puzzling things uh, in the text. Um, the best we can understand it is that perhaps God, God, God often does work through music with prophets in the Old Testament. Just It's one of the means by which God brings his word. And so he, he does that other places, 1 Samuel chapter 10, for instance. Um, and so I don't think there's anything mystical or magical about this musician, uh, except that God just chooses to use it. And when he does, Elisha receives the word of the Lord. God speaks through him, and he says, I am going to give all y'all everything that you need. All of the water that you're missing, the the desert that you're standing in, this time tomorrow, you're not going to hear rain, you're not going to see rain, but there's going to be a flood, and all of you will drink and will live. But that is far too light of a thing for God to do. It is way too small for him to just give dying people water out of thin air. God is going to give the victory in this war over Moab. Right? Actually, the very thing that Jehoram did not ask for, he was still not asking for it. He's only coming asking for water, right? Even though he doesn't ask for it, God gives it. Uh, and, And everything ends up happening word for word the way God predicts it, and the way God promises. The very next morning, right, uh, this sort of flash flood from the, the direction of Edom comes, and, and it fills them uh, with the pools of water. Um, they're all able to drink uh, again, and as the, the sun is coming up, it appears it, 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 it refracts upon all this water, and, uh, you know, maybe the Moabites weren't expecting water to be there anymore, um, right? And so it looks like blood, all of the reddish water, and they think, this is amazing. These three bickering kings have turned on each other and slaughtered each other. Now let's go take the spoil. Uh, Coincidentally, it turns into a bloodbath the other way around. The three kings wipe out Moab, and really point by point, Elisha's prophecy comes true. And again, why did the Lord do this? Because in his grace, it was for the sake of the the Davidic king standing next to Jehoram. His wrath was turned to grace. It It was really Jehoshaphat's victory all along, and Jehoram just benefited from it. Right? And that's why we read from Hebrews chapter 9 earlier, we we really could have read from six, seven, eight different chapters in Hebrews, all about the way Christ stands in our place. Christ is the the great high priest who, who makes the offering. Christ is the very sacrifice that turns God's wrath 
to grace. He's the victorious king who wins the war for us. God would have nothing to do with us if it was not for the one who stood beside us. We only have any good thing because Christ stands next to us the way Jehoshaphat stood next to Jehoram. God has no regard for sinners. He has all the regard for Christ. And Christ graciously bestows upon us the victory, the cleansing, the righteousness, and he strips away all that dirty idolatry. God's generosity is, is overflowing to sinners who stand next to Christ. Far greater than you could ever ask, far greater than you could ever imagine, far, far greater than Jehoram had asked for, God gave him the victory. It's because God's king was there with him. And so God does listen to sinners' prayers, not for our sake, but for the sake of Christ. But there is uh, one more bizarre warning for Israel. It's Misha's warning at the very end of this war. Point by point, Elisha's prophecy has come true. They have felled every good tree. They've stopped up all the springs. They've overthrown every good and choice city, every good piece of land. They've seemingly got the victory, right? And so what happens? Why? The end of this chapter is Israel turning their tail and running. So it's Moab's last stand. It looks like the war is lost, and so Misha has two last-ditch efforts as the king of Moab. The first is to take 700 of his best warriors and try to burst through the line. Um, And it fails miserably, and so he's on to his last plan, plan Z. And he takes his own firstborn son, who would be the ruler uh, and take over the country after he dies, gets up to the top of the city wall and offers him as a sacrifice. And the really weird thing is, it looks like it works. So in verse 27, he takes his oldest son and offers him up, and there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own lands. It's a bit of a tricky phrase there in verse 27. There came great wrath against Israel. It's not terribly clear whose wrath it is. Uh, It's not clear exactly how that turns into Israel withdrawing and going back to their own land. Uh, I, I think the best understanding of it is that Moab's army sees this horrific, horrific act take place and they're filled with some sort of superhuman fury and grief and indignation at what happens, and they just have this burst of energy, and they drive Israel back. Um, Any time we see this phrase in the Old Testament that there was wrath against somebody or, or wrath um, upon somebody, 
It is always wrath being poured out onto somebody or, or anger being shown against somebody. And so I, I do think Israel is being pushed back in the war here by Moab. And so what is going on here? Well, if you notice all the way throughout this chapter, if you were to look at it from King Jehoram's perspective, there is a lot of frustration. And so Jehoram ascends to the throne of Israel. He becomes king. He has all this territory, all this land and whatnot. What's the first thing that happened? Moab revolts. And so he plans an attack. He's got this great strategy with two other kings to go and and fight Moab and take them back. And what happens? They run out of water and they get lost and they look like they're about to die. Uh, Again, good news because they find Elisha, they find the prophet of God, uh, but Elisha refuses to listen to him, right? He, He finally chooses to seek out the Lord, but the Lord does not receive him. And then at the very end, Elisha promises some sort of domination, and yet they don't get the full victory. It, it, it really it should scorch into our mind what it means to make a mockery of God and his prophet. A lot like last week in the city of Bethel. Again, Jehoram is not like converted and turned around in his life in this text. We already got the, we already got the um, assessment in verses 1 through 3. He was evil all the way through. And God does not give him the final victory. It's really almost like um, common grace for Jehoram. He's kind of along for the ride and, and he benefits, but he does not get that full and final victory. Without the Lord, unbelievers will always end up, we will always end up frustrated in the end. Those good things will never really come. You will never be able to grasp them fully and finally without God. But this chapter here at the end, I I think it also does another thing. Misha's horrific sacrifice, I, I think it holds up for us Elisha's God and Misha's God. And it says, who do you want to follow? Who are you going to look to for salvation? Do you really, do you really want to follow Misha's God? Do you see what Misha had to do to get his attention? Look at what Moab has to do to get to their God. They have to manipulate him. They have to coerce him. They have to appease him. They have to butter him up. Right? A lot like when Elijah faced all the prophets on Mount Carmel and rained fire down from heaven. What did those prophets of Baal do? They, they danced around. They cut themselves. They wept. They, they frothed at the mouth. They did it for hours and hours and hours, and nothing ever came. And what does Elijah do on Mount Carmel? He prays, and he simply asks God. If you want to follow a God who is not Yahweh, you have to look at where it's going to lead you in the end. 
It is going to cost you immeasurably. It'll cost you everything. And that's not what you have to do to get Yahweh's attention. You do not have to bribe him. You do not have to coerce him. Jesus says to you, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Stop treating God like an idol. Do not think that you have to bribe him or appease him or make him feel a certain way before he listens to you. Do not put a quid pro quo in your relationship with God where there is none. Put all of your hope into the strong and perfect plea that you have with Jesus Christ. He stands beside you to plead for you. You don't have to cut yourself. You don't have to sacrifice your children. You do not have to to weep enough tears for your God to hear you. He is there to deliver. Very, very closely related to that is another good application for us. Keep praying. Uh, As as Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, what people has a God so near to it as the Lord is to us who hears us whenever we call? Christ has done the work to bring God's ear to you. Christ is the reason that God will always hear you. And I know every single one of us in this room has prayers that we feel like have gone unanswered, maybe for a lifetime. Do not give up praying. God still hears, even if it feels like he has not answered. It's not because he hasn't heard you. It's not because you're not good enough. It's not because you haven't come up with the the right magic formula yet to get to him. There's something about his will that we don't know, but he does hear you. Don't resort to what the pagans have to do to get their attention. You stand next to your strong and perfect plea. This gospel that Elisha presents to us, it's an easy yoke, and it is a light burden to come to our God. And so are you going to go on laboring? Are you going to go on crucifying yourself, crucifying your life in order to get to him? Or are you going to put your trust in Jesus and come to him and find your rest? Amen. Let's pray together. Our great Heavenly Father, we we do thank you and we praise you again for, for our intercessor and for our mediator, Jesus Christ. We thank you for our King, for our priests, for our sacrifice who stands next to us and gets your attention so that we don't have to. Lord, we praise you that you listen to Christ on our behalf. We praise you that you do listen to us now. Lord, we pray that you would help each one of us not to, not to treat you like a, a capricious, arbitrary, distant idol like the nation's worship. Help us to remember who you are, how close you are to us, what a gift your salvation is, how easy it is to come to you. We ask all these.